In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht git blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Hello and welcome to the episode 18 of our second series of Scottish Blethers. I'm Liz Lister. And I'm Helen Houston. Radio stars this week, Helen. Oh, I know, Liz, can't believe it. Mind you, I suppose most of our our listeners might have been asleep at the time. It was 12.30 in the morning in the wee small hours. We were on Radio 2 on OJ Borge programme. Yeah, Midnight Mastermind, where you're asked to give him three questions on a topic, he researches it. And uh, we gave him three. We managed to foil him with one of them. And um, yes. he got the other two, which is what I think they aim for. One easy, one middle and one yes. hard. So if anybody's interested, you can listen to it. But what was interesting was that the number of people from the States, from North America, that were, were listening at that time of the night here. Yes, I suppose it was just because they're early evenings for many of them. So it would be, yes, and they must have a, a way into Radio 2, maybe on their iPlayers or their internets or something. Yeah, so we'll post up the link for anybody that missed it that wants to hear it. But it did bring a few in from, from our um, cousins over the water. Yes, yes. And it, it was interesting just being there and their setup, Liz, how we had a, a wee kind of chat an hour before, which was literally just a chat, not with him, but with the producer, I suppose. And then it was straight into the live, the live show. Yeah, it was it was very interesting. Gave us an insight into the world yes. of, of radio. Yep, so it's been a while. We've you've been very busy, Helen. Oh, the month of June, Liz, has just been been so so interesting and so much fun. I've been driver guiding, I've been doing day tours, I've done a, a Rick Steves 13 day tour, and just absolutely loved meeting all these lovely people. And so now yeah. I'm back. So today is a, a catch up on on, as we say, catch up on the washing, getting all the washing done and out on the line. Well, you've got a good day for it so far. Yes. So before the rain comes on, we better bash on with this. And it's been a while, but um, we thought we would take something that's close to the hearts of anybody that comes to Scotland, because then um, when you're out and about, you can't help but be struck by the number of churches that we have. Yes, and that goes back to, you know, all these different little wee, wee disruptions and little kind of conflicts between ministers and churches. So not even do we have lots of churches, Liz, but we've got lots of churches that were divided because of this. So I'll kick off with one of my favourite churches, Liz, will I? Yes, go on you go. I'm going to go back to my hometown of Stirling, as you all know. And one of the 
big buildings completely dominating the town is the Church of the Holy Rood, and that's the second oldest building in Stirling. Now, my memories of it are from school days, because that was the church that we all went to for the school end-of-term services. And it's got massive, great stone pillars. And so the, the trick was to try and get in and get a seat behind a stone pillar so you couldn't be seen. So that was always good fun. But it's second oldest church and building in Stirling. It goes back to 1129 when it was founded by David I as the parish church of Stirling. So that sounds quite nice and simple. But then Robert II later on decided to found an altar to the Holy Rood. A Rood is a cross and the church became known as the Bixby Mouthful here, Parish Church of the Holy Rood of the Borough of Stirling. So we just now just call it the Holy Rood. But then catastrophe came, Liz. In 1405, a huge fire swept through Stirling and burnt the church. It was a wooden structure at that point. But then you can't have a town without a church, as we'll find out later on. So it got a grant and the new church, the church that we see today, was started. And one of the big things about the church was it is the only church apart from Westminster Abbey that is still an active living church that has hosted a coronation. And we all know all about coronations because we've had Charles III's coronation very recently, so people are aware of what a big, big ceremony that is. But James VI, the baby James VI, was crowned in the Church of the Holy Rood. And it wasn't a very big ceremony, Liz. It only had five earls and eight lords were present. And John Knox preached the sermon. And he chose for his subject something. Remember, Mary, Queen of Scots, had been forced to abdicate in favour of her infant son. So John Knox's sermon that he chose, the subject was the slaying of Queen Atalia and the crowning of the young King Joash. So he was really hammering his point home, was old John Knox. But the service only lasted 20 minutes. Now, we know that King Charles III cut down his coronation from four hours to two hours. So 20 minutes was all that King poor little baby James VI got at his, but then he was safe, taken back to the safety of Stirling Castle. It just shows that what goes around comes around. I mean, there's Charles III trying to cut things down and reduce the number of participants. Well, he didn't quite make it as far as good old James <laughs> no. VI of Scotland. That was That's five right. earls or whatever. That's really cutting back. <laughs> and, and John Knox. But there is a wee, there is a wee um, carving in one of the pillars of the Church of the Holy Rood, which is a, you know, one of these typical little apprentice carvings where they've done something funny. And I think it's this carving is one of a man sticking his tongue out. And we think that that was there and the wee baby king would be kind of looking up at this and thinking, well, there's somebody making a funny face. You know how we always do with children? We we act ridiculously stupidly. We go, oh, cuckoo, cuckoo, coo, and make funny faces. Well, I think this carving was doing that for the baby king. I think that the, the crown was too big for his head as well, wasn't it? Oh, that's right. It had to be held about. It would have poor crushed the poor wee soul. <laughs> it would crush it. But in 1997, the late Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, she was present in the church to wish to witness a reenactment of the coronation of James VI and unveiled a commemorative 
uh, inscription for that. But that was quite interesting. I wonder what she thought about that. I think there'd be more than five earls and eight lords <laughs> at that reenactment. But there's another wee funny story associated with the Church of the Holy Rood. I don't know whether you've noticed, Liz, but on the outside walls, there's kind of lots of little indentations which are musket fire, musket balls. Yep, I was just going to say that, yep. Yeah, but the, the thought was that they were there during the siege of Stirling in 1651, and it was you know, by General Monk. And... Um, but when they look at them a bit more closely, these musket balls are not on the right side of the church to have been, you know, got there during a siege. But they're all gathered round or, you know, gathered round little slot windows of the church. And they reckon now it might have been soldiers aiming at the slit windows of the church and just having a game. See who can get near and see if anybody can get a musket ball into the slit window. So that's one for our visitors to have a look at and make their own decision about that. But again, like many churches, Liz, this one was divided up by you know, just little conflicts between ministers and conflicts between the different churches. So it was divided up in the 17th century, but all brought back together again. And it's now is a magnificent church that I just love going into and just witnessing the building of it and just all the things that have happened within it. Wonderful. Yep. Close to home. You know, your memories of, of going from school. I remember those school services as well. They stick with you and the hymns that uh, you still remember to this day. But for mine, um, again, closest to my heart, but going from the grandeur of the Church of the Holy Rood in Stirling to one of the most simple of churches, but certainly one of the most photographed and painted in Scotland. It's certainly got a picturesque position, and it's Loch Alvey Church. Now, those of you that follow Scottish Blethers will probably know that, um, as well as living in Fife with uh, Helen and Salon, uh, we also have a little cottage up outside Aviemore, and that is on the, the, um, on the road, the track that leads up to Loch Alvey Church, so very close to home. And right as a child, we would go on picnics um, round about it because it sits on a little peninsula that juts out into the beautiful Loch Alvey with the monolith mountains behind it that get covered in heather in August. And it's just absolutely beautiful. And they reckon that going back to the times of St Columba and his followers, there were Celtic missionaries that came out and that they would have formed a cell here, a religious cell, on the peninsula jutting out into the, the loch, probably as far back as 7th century. They think one of them might have been St Drostan, who was a follower of St Columba. So there's been a, a church of some kind here on this site going right back to the 7th century. And the actual name Alvi, they think that it comes from the Gallic word for a swan. Now I can't produce, pronounce this, but the B-H is a V, a V. So Elv and then E means an island. So at some point there may have been an island because there's not an island now, but the island of the swans. But certainly what you do get nowadays is that you always get the swans returning in the springtime. So the, the loch of the swans, beautiful, beautiful setting. And the little peninsula made up the glebe, which is the area that the church and the manse are built on. So what we've got today, the church that's currently standing there, dates back to 1768. And a really simple, 
whole church. Um, it's a rectangle, it's orientated east to west, as most of our churches are, and it was just made from the local granite, which was tooled or worked to be smooth. And then on the top of it, it's got a coating of what we call harl in Scotland, which is kind of waterproofing material made out of lime so that it keeps it dry and protects it from the weather. And on the top, it's got a simple slate roof, it's got a bell tower um, at the west end, and on the south facing, where you get the light, it's got tall, symmetrical windows to flood as much light into the interior as possible. And when you go inside, really simple. Yeah. And Liz, I was just going to say, you know, I, I was just visualising that church. It is beautiful in its situation. And to see it in sunlight with swans on the loch, just beautiful. It is. It's surrounded by a graveyard with a, a rough rubble wall round about it. And nowadays it's also got a modern graveyard extended onto it, but very simple. And you can wander through the headstones. You've got pedestals, there's obelisk, Celtic crosses, table stones, slabs, relief. And, and when you walk through them in springtime, the snowdrops are all out. But it's amazing how many McBains and McBeans there were. So very much so, so, um, providing the, the services for the local areas. And when this church was built in 1768, it was built for 500 sittings. Now, if you think about that, this is a remote rural area. Today, um, it would be lucky if you, in a small church like this, if you got a handful of people, but built for 500. That shows how, how times have changed. So very simple. And as you walk into it, the interior is plastered in white and all round about it, you've got a pine ceiling and pine dado rail. Um, so the bottom half is pine and then pine pews. And it's thought, it's said, that these pine pews were actually designed by Sir Basil Spence, who was a major international Scottish architect. He built Coventry Cathedral and he um, was said to have contributed to a restoration in 1952. So my question is, why? Why was such a renowned architect involved in these simple pews? Who knows? Anyway, it, it smells as you walk into it, you get the smell of old pine. So <laughs> it really is such an evocative little church. But it also has a history because in 1880, you know, so that's about um, nearly 50 years after the original construction, they decided that they were going to replace the cobbled floor with a wooden floor. So they dug up the cobbled floor and underneath the chapel at this time, it would have been a church, Presbyterian church by that time. But the, the chapel that had been there before, going back to the, you know, the Middle Ages, they discovered that there was 150 bodies. Oh, and the skeletons <laughs> had all been buried head to head. So really mysterious. Why were there 150 bodies there? There was no record of any battle in the area. They didn't have any weapons with them. So some people suggested, well, maybe it was the plague. Uh -huh. But they didn't have mass graves on consecrated ground, so it's unlikely that it was the plague. So there's been different suggestions. It's said that it could be involved with the Wolf of Badenoch. Um, oh. That was the second son of Robert II, a nasty man, and um, he sacked Elgin Cathedral in 1390, so it's thought that it was maybe a meeting of the two armies of the Wolf of Badenoch and the, the Bishop of Elgin. Possibly that, but no weapons. Even older... They've now, they, they've always known that there was a battle that was called Danachten, 
and close to this area there is a place called Danachten, and it's said that in the 7th century the Picts met the Northumbrians and that the king of Northumbria led his forces to try and reassert authority, authority against the Picts. So maybe this was Danachten. But what I like to think, because there was no markers, there was no weapons, no record at all. And we know that Ruthven Barracks are very close by. And of course, we know that on the way back after Culloden, the Jacobite soldiers would have passed this way, going to rally at the barracks at Ruthven. So maybe they were carrying their war dead with them. And maybe they buried them secretly under the floor of the chapel so that the, the area wouldn't get desecrated by the redcoats if they found out. Who knows? But in those days, when it was, this is going back to 1880, there was no carbon dating or modern archaeology. So they just reburied the dead in the churchyard. And to this day, if you go into the churchyard, you can see a single granite, red granite stone. And it's got a a very interesting um, carving on it, a a reference to those that there. And it, it said, Buried here are the remains of 150 human bodies found in October 1880 beneath the floor of this church. Who they were, when they lived, how they died, tradition notes not. Their bones are dust, their good swords rust, their souls are with the saints we trust. So lovely memorial to those that have used this church before. As I say, we live there. The pandemic saw the very final services come to an end. And in June 2022, just last year, they had the, the Church of Scotland had its finest final service there. The church has been bought by the Alvey estate and it's now a kirk for hire. So it can still be used for weddings, funerals, maybe film settings, locations, anything like that. Um, So it's going to be protected and it's going to be maintained so that it's not in danger of falling down. But I think this is an important message of what's happening across Scotland at the moment, in that the the congregations are absolutely decimated. In the Mm -hmm. 1960s, the Church of Scotland, there was about 1.6 million members And in 2021, when they did the last count, there was just 283,000. And that trend of falling congregations is just continuing and continuing. So the Church of Scotland now has a policy of the right spaces in the right places. And many churches like Alvey are being sold off. Um, So it's so sad, but just hope that like Alvey, they can be protected. Yeah, I think that's very true, Liz, because even in our village in Salon, our church is closed because it's condemned. The roof is needing work on it and there's just not money to do that. And we're meeting in the church hall, but you mentioned a handful of people and that's the case. But the people who go are very strong in their church. So I think that something has got to be done. I think the church is maybe looking at its work, its workings in perhaps a a way that is a little bit out of date. It maybe has to move with the times. But I loved I loved your chat about the graveyard because I just love wandering around graveyards um, because you get in our churches, like the Church of the Holy Grood, you get rude, you get the ones that go back for years and years and years, centuries, and then you get the new ones. And it was in the 1800s that they started the hygienic cemeteries where you, it was actually a place of tranquility for walking. The necropolis in Glasgow, the Valley Cemetery in, in Stirling, where you just, it was like a park. You walked through and were educated. 
Yeah, it was before the days of Sunday trading. Yes, <laughs> the, exactly. Goes to the, they all worship at the at, at, at the church of the out, out of town malls. That's right, the but, outlet um, centres. Yeah, before them, they had nothing better to do on a Sunday than go and wander through a graveyard. That's right. Yes. <laughs> and talking of graveyards and sort of churches, Liz, I'm going to look at Burnt Island Church now. Burnt Island is a a little place very close to us. It's in Fife, the King, Kingdom of Fife. And um, the Burnt Island Church is just a small church, very, very different in shape and form, but also has a history which is quite unbelievable when, when we I start to unro- unfold it for you. The church that's there now replaced a former church, which, which there are still ruins to be seen nearby at Kirkton. But the church by the 16th century, the church had the town of Burnt Island had grown so much and it had achieved royal borough status, which meant it had the right to trade and to trade internationally. And to symbolise this prosperity, the, the people in the town decided to raise money and build a new church. But the church the design they chose was very different and it made a huge contribution to the development of the architectural tradition of the Reformed Church. It was quite simple. It was just basically um, a square. They built it in a square. And this building started just after the Reformation. So it was in fifteen, sort of the 1590s that it was built. And it reflects the changes in the church. Basically, it's a square where the, the pulpit and the communion table is right at the centre of the church. The people sit round on all four sides. But I think it's quite funny. The pulpit is kind of at one side of the centre. So the minister stands and he can address all the congregation from his place of worship, from his place of, of um, preaching. And this was reflecting the the need for the Presbyterian tradition to listen to the spoken word that you know, when you do go to church, you sit and you listen to the minister. But directly opposite the minister, there's a beautiful canopied pew, which has the date of 1606 on it. And the initials are SRM, Sir Robert Melville. And this was um, for the local laird to sit in. It's now changed its name. It's now known as the Magistrates Pew, because this is to do with a... Once a town council took over the church, you're away from the laird. Every year there is something called the kirking of the council, which means that all the members of the council, the, the town sort of organisation, the, the members of the council, they all meet and they march to the church. The kirking of the council, it's now known as the magistrate's pew, where the councillors would sit. But... Galleries were added in the 1700s, and just as you mentioned, Alvey Church and the numbers at Alvey Church, this was to really increase the numbers of seats available for for the congregation. You know, things that they don't need to do now, they're taking seats out. But the Burnt Island Church always has a big connection with the sea, and one of the most striking um, features of it, which uh, tells us about the importance of the sea, is what's known as the Sailor's Loft, which is the East Gallery, and it has an outside stair to it. So sailors who were um, having to come into the harbour and out of the harbour on the tide, if the tide so happened to be right, 
uh, at the middle of the church service, the sailors could leave the church without disturbing the rest of the congregation. Uh, but one other big thing on the that the church has is a model of the great Michael. Now, James IV, who had also contributed to the building of this church, James IV, he was one of these kings that wanted to really be at the head of the the leading edge of everything. So he was going to build the biggest church, the biggest uh, ship in the that had ever been built. So this was being built at New Haven, uh, just near Edinburgh. But very sadly for this ship, on its almost its maiden voyage, it sank, and it sank in the Firth of Forth. And the the survivors sheltered in the old church that was at Burnt Island at that time. And in return for getting the shelter and being looked after by the villagers, they presented the church with a model of the great Michael. But sadly, like many things, it disappeared in the 1800s during great extensive alterations in the church. And the present model that is there was presented to the church in the 1960s. But the thing that makes the church most famous for people across the world is the King James Bible. The King James Bible, sometimes known, the church is sometimes known as the Kirk of the Bible, because on the 12th of May 1601, a meeting of the General Assembly was of the Church of Scotland was supposed to be a meeting in St Andrews, and James the Sixth was going to be present, but he'd had an accident when he was staying at Ross End near Burnt Island, and he'd broken his shoulder, hurt his shoulder in a hunting accident. So he said to the General Assembly, come to the church at Burnt Island, and we'll have the General Assembly there. So that's what they did. And it was at that meeting in 1601, and the date's important, that it was agreed to commission a new translation of the Bible. Now, when we talk of the King James Bible, we think of the Hampton Court uh, meeting, which the Bible was commissioned, but it all started in Burnt Island. It was when 1603, when James became King of England, James I of England, and he held a meeting at Hampton Court in 1604. That's when, once again, the Bible was commissioned. But it all started, Liz, at Burnt Island Church. Fascinating, and each of these churches has got you know such a rich history. You know, you could do you could you could take any church in Scotland and look at it, and it's fascinating. But when you talk about James the Fourth and the Great Michael, I always think of boys and their toys because he yes. got into a race with uh, with Henry the Eighth, and he Henry the Eighth, of course, had the Mary Rose. And so James IV said, well, if he's got one, I'll have one even bigger. So from the Mary Rose sprang the great Michael. But it was so big that he couldn't sail it. It was har- It was moored at New Haven Harbour. And he used to bring all the, the, the good and the rich of the of the of Europe of the continent would all go down to dinner and he'd fire off the cannons and he'd give them a good dinner and then they'd come back up again so it was just a fancy restaurant a floating yes. restaurant which is what of course many of these are today well that's what they are yeah as you say Liz what goes round comes around exactly boys <laughs> and their toys yes well you know I am always struck when I take visitors up to the highlands of Scotland as we we go around you know the simplicity the number of churches that you have but the simplicity and the use of local building materials I mean my one of my favorite as you're leaving what's the name of the place at the Fort Augustus at the top of, of Loch Ness um you pass a crinkly tin 
church. Right, so they're using local building materials. Now, Crinkley Tin was the ubiquitous building material of the Highlands because Prince Albert used it to build the ballroom at uh, at, at Balmoral. And so if it was good enough for Albert and Victoria, it was good enough for the, for the people of the Highlands. So you've even got churches made of tins, but they're all very, very simple. And people might have heard of what are called the Telford parliamentary churches and they've got a really interesting history because they go right back to the Church of Scotland Act in 1824. So we've got the good old Presbyterian Church of Scotland but 1824 things were changing in the Highlands. Um, This is after the Battle at Culloden, the removal of Highland culture, the Highland clearances Things are drastically changing. And also we've had the Napoleonic Wars and down in the UK Parliament, they wanted to celebrate and give thanks for um, to God for success in the, the, um, in the Napoleonic Wars. And so in 1819, down in the UK Parliament at Westminster, they awarded a million pounds for building of churches and chapels in um, the Church of England. And 214 commissioners' churches were built or refurbished there. But as usual, there was a lot of politics and delaying over how much Scotland should get. But they recognised that things had changed. There was large areas of rough mountainous land now that the people were spread over. They'd been cleared, they'd been moved to villages at the coast. So if they were going to get to church to worship regularly, then new churches needed to be built. But when they did award the money, they only gave 200,000 for the whole of the north of Scotland. And worse still, they couldn't come to any agreement about the bill for the lowlands, so it, it didn't get any money at all. But when it was passed for the Highland, they said that um, no church should have over £1,500 spent on it. They awarded a total of 50000 which when you consider that one church in England alone cost over 77000 it wasn't really a fair distribution of the money. So they had to come up with something cheap, something standard and something that could withstand the weather in the Highlands. So they went to the man who was building their roads and bridges up in the Highlands at that time, Chief Surveyor Thomas Telford, one of the greatest Scottish civil engineers ever. And he was tasked with building what would eventually be 32 kirks or churches and 41 manses. Some manses to be built on churches that didn't currently have a a manse. And so the design was very simple. It was basically, it was prefabricated. It was used simple local materials and then all of the windows and doors were built. The windows were made in Aberdeen and they were brought in and so they could put them up quick and cheap. And that was why you get so these parliamentary kirks that you see all over the highlands. That's right. I mean, they're beautiful, beautiful buildings. And, you know, just you say just one one place for worship, a vestry for the minister to put on his gownie and a bell tower. That was all they required. And nowadays, Liz, because again, we've mentioned the, the diminishing numbers going to church and the church is closing down, that they make beautiful, convert beautifully into residential homes. And there are some lovely ones all around the country. They're the right size. They've got the right amount of ground and they make beautiful homes. 
Yeah, one of the most famous of those that's won many awards is the parliamentary church that was built on the tiny little western isle of, of uh, Bernary. And uh, an art teacher took that over and built it. But it's a good example there of how they were they were personalised to the local conditions. So at that one, it had a front door, which the people from Bernary would enter in, but it also had a rear door, which entered. Uh, which opened onto the sea and that was where the people from the neighbouring island of Pabi would come by boat and come in on their side of it you know so each of these is although they're standardised they're also personalised I love Olapool which is still a good example it's not a museum but it's a good example of a parliamentary church it's, uh, the parliamentary church on Iona is the Iona parish church still active that's not the abbey but there is a parliamentary Telford church on Iona Yep, and of course it's not just um, Presbyterian Church of Scotland churches all over Scotland. We've also got many other faiths, and so my second one that I'll I'll take as is is a very interesting history, and it's a chapel, and it's the Italian chapel on Orkney, which is a beautiful little place to visit, isn't it? Oh, it's stunning. I I went there uh, last year for the first time, and it just you cannot speak when you're in it. It just takes your breath away. It's beautiful. So I'm going back to the simple again in this example, but this was 1942. This is you know, the, the latter stages of World War II. And during the North Africa campaign, the British army captured 1,300 Italian prisoners of war and 550 of them were sent to what was called Camp 60, which was on, at that time, an unin uninhabited island um, in the Orkney Isles off the north coast of Scotland. And it was the island of Lamb Home. And the they were put to work in something that was contrary to you know all the regulations of war that we have nowadays but they were put to work building the Churchill barriers now these four causeways were made out of huge massive concrete blocks which were put in to block the access to Scapa flow because of course that was the big deep water harbor that was so strategically important for the the British fleet but they got around it by saying that this was communication links it was nothing to do with defense and so these Italian prisoners of war were put to work um, building these massive Churchill barriers. And at night they would go back to little Nissan huts, 13 cheerless, um, simple little Nissan huts. And being creative, the Italians went to work. They made concrete paths round about the huts. They planted flowers. They even built a figure of St George slaying the dragon. They made a barbed wire frame and then covered it in concrete, which was one thing that they did have plenty of access to building the concrete barriers. <laughs> so they were very, very creative, but they were Italian. Italian. And the one thing that they wanted more than anything else was a chapel. And it was a new camp governor and they also had an Italian priest there. So they were very supportive of this request and they, they tried their best to try and get something for the prisoners to be, have a, a place of worship. And they were eventually able to give them two Nissan huts, but they were just very, very simple corrugated iron. So they, they got to work on it. They placed two of them end to end and joined them together. And then they hid all this unsightly corrugated iron underneath plasterboards with a coating of concrete. And 
And so they took these simple huts and transformed them into a work of beauty so that it began to look like a church from the outside. But it's really the interior that is so particularly special. And that was largely down to one of the prisoners, a man called Domenico Ciocetti. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> but he was just absolutely bursting with creative ideas. And he got all the, uh, the, the, the prisoners together and looked at what skills they had. Some of them were raw iron workers, so they set to work making a rude screen, um, a screen to the, of the, the cross to, um, do, to this point of worship. There were cement workers, there were electricians. They used all their talents. So the, the concrete workers made the altar and a stoop for the holy water. They got some shipwrecked wood and the joiners got to work and made that into a tabernacle. They made an altar rail using scrap metal left over from building the barriers. And so the whole thing began to take shape. They lined it with plaster and painted it white. And then Ciocetti came into his own because throughout the war, he carried right in his, his wallet with him, he'd carried a holy picture of the Madonna and child. And he painted this picture on the rear, so behind the altar, and it's still there to this day. Um, absolutely magnificent. The prisoners themselves, they only used it for a short period because by the time it was completed, it was just about the end of the war, and they went home in September 1944. But Chia was so devoted to his work that he stayed on and he finished his great masterpiece. And he came back twice um, after the war was finished. In 1964, he brought his wife Maria with him and they gifted the 14 stations of the cross, which were carved by hand and they're now fixed to the chapel walls. So when he left, the Italians were given a promise that the Orcadians would cherish their little chapel. And in 1996, there was a dedication between officials from Orkney and Ciocetti's hometown of Mina in Italy, M-O-E-N-A, I think that's how you pronounce it. And so to this day, the, the Arcadians really look after it, they preserve it with love, and it's now become a major tourist attraction. Over 100,000 people use it every year to visit, but the local people, the local Roman Catholics, still use it as their chapel. So it's a beautiful little, you know, particularly special church in Scotland. And and it is beautiful. And the thing that I remember about it, Liz, is that one of the iron workers who was doing the rude screen or something in the in the church, he was told sort of unexpectedly that he was being posted elsewhere or taken elsewhere one night. But he'd fallen in love with a a local girl, and he didn't have any way of of telling her that you know that he was disappearing. He was going away. So he that night he worked and he put a tiny little red heart in metalwork on the floor beside the screen and um, told his his friends to tell his girlfriend, if they saw her, to look in the church and she would know that he'd left his heart for her in the church. It's beautiful, a lovely wee story. It's all these stories that were unearthing. Yeah. And as I say, every church that you went to in Scotland, you could pick up the the same stories. We could have, you know, we were talking about our favourite churches here. We haven't even scratched the surface, but no. um, maybe something that we'll return to. A lot of information in this one rather than blethers, but something that, um, you know, that as guides, you know, you like to know these little stories because they make these churches come alive. Absolutely, Liz. And as you say, there's so many other churches we haven't even touched on. We mentioned John Knox once. We haven't touched on the number of churches that he sort of did his sort of 
hellfire and brimstone sermon, sermons from, but another yeah. another episode is in the making, Liz. Definitely, the notes are already there. Yes, right. <laughs> so we'll, we'll we'll not do we'll not do this next week, but we'll come back to it. And if, we'll if people have their favourite churches in Scotland, please let us know, and we can cover them because we've got, we've got our own. I was hoping to do series and St Monans and oh, you know, so yeah. many, but uh, for another occasion. But have you got a word of the week, Helen? Well, I was just thinking about churches, Liz, and if you remember, you know, going to church as a and Sunday school as a, as a wee girl sitting in the church, you were always told to sit properly and had your wished, <laughs> keep quiet. Had your wished is my word. Yeah, keep quiet, hold hold your breath, and uh, and very often we were given pan drops to help oh, us had yes. our wished. <laughs> a wee yes. sookie sweetie would would do, do the trick. Well, if you go to visit some of these larger churches in Scotland, now often they have a little museum attached to them. And very often, you know, the National Museum of Scotland as well, very often what you'll see is the cutty stool. Now, the cutty stool, good Scottish words, cutty stool, but the cutty stool was at the front and that was where anybody who broke the rules of the church was brought for ritual humiliation. You had to sit there while everybody came to church on a Sunday and uh, if you had committed any sins in the eyes of the elders of the church, that was where you had to do your penitence. So it was also called the penitence stool. So I must say, I'm glad that they don't have the penitence school nowadays or I think you and I might end up. <laughs> I think so. And poor, and poor Rabbi Burns spent most of his life sitting on the on the, the cutty stool in front, facing the congregation. It didn't, it didn't do much good for him anyway. No. It didn't make him stop from erring in his ways. That's but that's it for this week. I hope that you've enjoyed the information that we've had and we look forward to getting back to you at a time that we can both get together. But uh, And you're off to Pamplona. I am. Now. I'm away to see those of you that know Fran. Um, I'm going back to meet up with several of the Spanish guides in Pamplona for um, the Festival of San Fermán, which goes on for the week, and the running of the bulls. So uh-huh. very exciting. And have a great time, Liz, and say hello to all our friends over there. Yeah, and then it's back to Old Claws and Porridge because I'm back to guiding in earnest at that point. I'll be keeping up with you by the time I get back. Oh, yes. Oh, well. But that's great, Liz, and lovely to to chat to you. Okay. Bye for now. Bye for now, everyone. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. bye.